Let's look to God's Word this morning as we open up to our text, Romans chapter 3. And uh, we've been looking at Romans 3, and uh, last week we just kind of laid down some groundwork, and we're going to continue along that line today. Um, I just want to read for us uh, today basically the first um, verse 20 through um, 22. And so follow along as I read this for you. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've been studying here in Romans for several months now and we've been looking at um, our nature and total depravity and that we're all sinners. That's a simple fact that God through Paul points out over and over in this um, section of scripture and in your outline there you have a little overview and section one in Romans basically talks about the idea that we need salvation desperately, and it establishes that fact because it, it over and over again establishes the fact of sin, that we, re, we need a required righteousness that we don't have, and that we're all guilty before men. And then as we begin this new section in Romans chapter 3, we finally get some good news that there is hope for all men before God. There is a way of salvation, and that way of salvation is by receiving the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not trying to come up with your own. And so that's where we find ourselves. And, uh, you know, last week we just kind of laid down a little bit of uh, groundwork into this new kind of mini-series here, the miracle of righteousness, man's right standing before God. And uh, last week I I talked a little bit about the idea that... um, Part of Scripture uh, teaches that part of the gospel, really, is the idea that it includes the elements of repentance, confession, and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't take that away from or outside of the gospel. And I want to kind of go over this again this morning because it's important that we understand what righteousness is and where it comes from and, and uh, how we get it. Um, throughout the book of, of Romans here, you see the word righteousness or justification. It's the same word over and over and over again, more than 60 times. And so it's on Paul's heart. The Spirit of God put it on Paul's heart for a, a purpose. And so here, the focus of our passage this morning, verse 21 and following, really focuses on God's righteousness. And it really boils down to the question, the simple question, and we kind of hit on this last week a little bit, can a person receive Jesus as his Savior without receiving him as his Lord? Can you do that? Is that possible? And, you know, you can... uh, uh, ask that question, and you can read good books on it. Uh, if you want a good book on the gospel, uh, John MacArthur's book, the, the Gospel According to Jesus, is a good place to start. 
If you want to read the other side of that argument, you can read Charles Ryrie's uh, book called So Great Salvation, which basically talks about the idea that, yeah, you can come to Jesus as your Savior without making him your Lord. All right, that's where his perspective is. And so and you can see that played out in, in his notes in his, in his study Bible and other things like that. And so we have to be careful. And last week, we talked about some true elements of our salvation. In other words, the repentance, confession, submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. And, and I just want to help you understand that we're not, um, we don't believe that these elements of salvation, repentance, confession, and submission, are something that we're adding to the gospel. That's what people like Charles Ryrie would say. They would say, no, you're adding to the gospel. Uh, And that's just not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, We believe that repentance and confession and submission to the lordship of Christ is not something we add to the gospel. It's intrinsic in the gospel. It's part of becoming a Christian. It's part of that salvation, that transformation experience. But I do want to say here this morning that there are uh, some things that are added to the gospel. And I just want to take a, a quick little detour from Romans and look over at Colossians, the book of Colossians, You just turn over there. And last week we saw how that we are changed from wrath to righteousness, from condemnation to justification, from bondage to freedom, from being excluded from the presence of God to actually being a participant in His whole salvation plan. And as you turn to uh, uh, Colossians chapter 2, it's interesting that Paul, here in, in the book of Colossians, really ran into some of the same things that we run into uh, today. Um, the thing that corrupts the simplicity and the, the purity of our salvation, of the gospel message, is not things like confession and repentance and submitting to the Lordship of Christ. Uh, he gives us those items here in the, uh, the, the letter to the Colossians. Now, remember, the the letter to the Colossians, it's an open rebuttal, really, to the false teachers that were confronting the Christians at Colossae. These are people that became Christians, and now all of a sudden, uh, they were being told that, well, okay, great, you became a Christian, but you also have to do this, and you have to do that, and you have to do this. And so, Paul had to write them a letter to kind of rebuke these teachers, Because we really believe that the basic truth of Christianity is who? It's Christ. That Christ is sufficient. That Christ is all. That Christ is God. That Christ is Savior. That Christ is Lord. That Christ redeems. Christ is everything you need. You don't need to add anything to that. That's the message. And so, before we turn to chapter 2 of Colossians, where I want to kind of point some of these things out, look at verse 20 of chapter uh, 1, 20 of chapter 1, because we always want to make sure that we keep things in their context. 
And so it says there in verse 19, For in Him who in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether what? On earth or in heaven, making peace by what? The blood of His cross. Next week we're going to have communion time together. We're going to talk about the blood of Christ. We're going to talk about the body of Christ. We're going to talk about the sacrifice of Christ. But he just got done talking. If you read the first several chapters, we're not going to take time to do it, but about the deity of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, who Christ is. I shared last Friday morning at CC in our devotion. I talked about John 1.1, and we talked about the Word being Jesus Christ. And I explained it to him that if we communicate with one another... Unless we're mute or deaf, the other person's deaf, we use what? We use words. We don't grunt. You know, some people maybe do, but, you know, I've maybe grunted a couple times at my wife when she asked me a question. But for the most part, we use words, intelligible words, so people can know what's in our heart, all right, what we're trying to communicate. And so what God has done is he's given us his son, the living word, as a way of, of communing with us, of communicating to us. And so... Jesus Christ is God, and that's what Paul had just got done talking about. And in this incredible passage, in those, those leading up to basically verse uh, 15 there, he says that the, now that Christ is the fullness of God in verse 19. I mean, it's just an amazing. And then he says that that was who Christ is. That's the person of Christ. And then Paul kind of shifts a little bit and he begins to talk about the work of Christ. And he says that he made peace through the cross. So he talks about not only the person of Christ, the deity of Christ, but he says that Christ did a certain work. He made peace through the cross for us. And verse 21, it says it resulted in our salvation. It says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Don't ever forget that, beloved. Don't ever forget that once you were someone outside of Christ. See, I think so many times we gather together as believers and we forget the fact that one time we didn't like to do this. We didn't appreciate the Word of God. We didn't appreciate fellowshipping with the saints. We didn't appreciate prayer. We didn't appreciate that we had a God who offered us salvation. That we were, what? Alienated. That we were hostile in our mind toward God. See, the minute we forget that is the minute we put up a big dividing line between us and those who have yet to believe. And we think that somehow, you know, we, we need to stay away from those people. No. The, the Bible says just the opposite. Don't forget, you were just like them. And unless someone came by God's grace and gave you the gospel, you'd still be like them. And so he says there that you were hostile in mind doing evil deeds. And then verse 22, it says, He has now reconciled his body of flesh by his death in order to present you what? What's it say? Verse 22, present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Wow. Why did he do all this? He wanted 
you to be reconciled to him. The only way that could ever happen was that you be blameless, that you be um, holy, that you be above reproach. And there was no way we were going to be able to accomplish that on our own. What do we call that? What do we call becoming holy and blameless and above reproach? We call it, what, sanctification, right? That's what happens. You become a Christian, and then God slowly starts to work on you, or maybe quickly, depending on who you are, whatever, how much you can handle. But eventually, he's making you more and more like his son. Now, you don't ever, in this body of flesh, arrive. You don't ever get to a point in your salvation where you don't sin anymore, or or you're not tempted by sin anymore, or you're somehow walking on air while the rest of us kind of muddle around down here in the, the mud. It doesn't work that way. There are some people that teach that. They teach sinless perfection. That you can get so sanctified in your walk with Christ that, boy, sin is not even a temptation anymore. And I think the minute you believe that lie, you begin your fall downward. Except by the grace of God, there go I, right? I mean, we have to be careful sometimes when we hear even of brothers and sisters who have fallen into sin. We should be praying for them and, and not necessarily falling in judgment upon them. So he did this through his flat, he did this through his flesh through the death, and he did it so that we would be holy, blameless, and above reproach. And you say, well, that's pretty neat. Those are some pretty key things. But don't stop there. See, so many times we want to stop there. Hey, I'm holy, I'm blameless. I'm above reproach because I'm a Christian. But look at what it says in verse 23. If, what? Indeed, you continue in the what? In the faith. If you indeed continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. What if somebody says, hey, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and, and you know, I'm, my life's not really showing it now, but I made that commitment. You know, I walked the aisle, I raised the hand, I threw the stick in the fire, whatever you do. Does that mean anything? We all know people who once made a commitment to Christ, and now you talk to them, and it's like, I don't, I don't go for that anymore, I don't believe in God anymore, I'm just doing my own thing. See, there are some theologians who say, well, that person's still a Christian, even though they're denying God. Even though they're, because tr- they trusted Jesus as their Savior. And just because Jesus isn't the Lord or the Master of their life, that doesn't mean that they're not saved. I don't believe that's what the Scripture teaches. Because he says here, these things will be yours if you continue in them, if you continue in the faith. In other words, if there's no manifestation of holiness or blamelessness or righteousness then there was probably no work of sanctification in your life. And we have a lot of people filling pews today that are holding on to some commitment they made 20 years ago, and their life now, their spiritual life, is in shambles. Because somebody told them, well, once you're saved, you're always saved. It doesn't matter what you do. 
We have to be careful how we communicate these truths. Um, God should be doing a sanctifying work in us. All of us are in the same boat. We're all sinners. We all need the grace of God daily. And God is the one who is making us holy, unblameable, and above reproach. And that's just not a positional reality. You know, sometimes people will say, well, that means that God looks at us as holy because that's our position before Christ. But surely he doesn't expect us just to live holy lives. Well, no, it it, it goes to the practical truth of life as well. He expects us to do that. It's the practical aspect of verse 23. That's what he's saying. This holiness and this blamelessness and this above reproach, all that stuff is is to be manifested if you continue in the faith. Look at John chapter 8. The Gospel of John chapter 8. I mean, the the bottom line truth is if someone bails out of the faith, you can be sure that they never had it. They were never really, truly redeemed. Look at John chapter 8, verse 31. Look at what he says. So Jesus said to the Jews who had what? Believed in him. They believed in him. If you... Abide, or you continue in my word, you are what? Truly my disciples. Verse 32. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus didn't say, oh great, you just believed in me, that's fine. Don't worry about it. It's all under grace. No. He said, you know what? You need to continue. You need to abide in me. That's what that word means. You need to abide. You need to continue in my word. Then, only then, are you truly my disciples. Because sometimes Jesus said some radical things. Would you agree? I mean, if you look at John chapter 6, just back a couple chapters, and you see what, John, what Jesus said to these poor folks. He's talking about eating flesh and drinking blood, and they're going, whoa, wait a minute. You know, what are you talking about? They didn't get it. They missed the whole illustration that he was trying to give them. And if you look all the way down in verse 66 of chapter 6 of John, it says, after this, after what? After what he just explained to them, that he was the the bread of life and all this stuff, and they didn't get it at all. It went right over their head. He says, after this, many of his disciples, what? Turned back and no longer walked with him. Wow. What did they do? They deserted. They just split. They said, man, this is, this is too big. I can't handle this kind of commitment. You're, you're expecting me to do some things here that are a little radical, Jesus. I, I, you know, I'm not going to do this. And it says they left. And back in John, he says, no, if you abide with me and you abide in my word, you continue in my word, then you're going to prove yourself to be real. See, that's why it's so important when we take a new believer, someone who's professed faith in Christ, 
that you take them and you begin to minister to them. And, you know, you don't have to give them all the answers. You know, they have the same Holy Spirit if they're truly a Christian that you do. And God's perfectly capable of caring for that individual soul. And so many times we're so quick to put all this spiritual truth into someone who just professed Christ rather than waiting and seeing, okay, what's changed? What's going on here with this person? Let's see. They, They came to church. They made a profession of Christ. What would be the likely conclusion of someone who truly was born again, truly was transferred from darkness to light? They would have a desire, right? That's what Peter tells us, that you would crave the milk of the word. So if they came to church and they heard the truth and they heard something that that taught them the truth, then their desire would most likely be to come back to that place and and feed once again. Or maybe talk to somebody and say, wow, you know, I I don't have a Bible. You know, do you think you can get me a Bible? You know, let them come up with that. So many times we're quick to kind of push all this stuff on people. A lot of times I like to sit back and say, okay, is God doing a work here or not? And maybe he is doing a work, but the work isn't completed yet. Maybe that person truly hasn't come to Christ yet. I don't know. I can't see their heart. I wish it would be so easy as to have a little x-ray machine, you know, and you could come up here and you could stand in the x-ray. Oh yeah, Jesus is in there. That's great. That person's a believer. Next. I mean, that, that would help me sleep at night. I mean, just knowing that boy, you know, and for myself too, to stand in there and go, yeah, I see him in there. Good. You know, in those times of doubting, which we all go through sometimes. We need to be reminded that Jesus always said, no, you have to continue in the faith. So sanctification, righteous manifestation in your life, godly behavior, holy activity, all those things are a picture of somebody's salvation, that they were truly born again. If you look back at 1 John chapter 3, once again, he says the exact same thing. 1 John chapter 3. He goes through this whole scenario there, and basically he concludes, if you don't love your brother, I don't really care what you say. <laughs> You're not saved. That's kind of what the, the whole book of 1 John is about, where the rubber meets the road concerning your faith. And he says in chapter 3, he says, if you continue to live in sin, continue to live in sin. I don't care what comes out of your mouth. I don't care what you claim you are. He says, you're not saved. You're a child of the devil. You're not a child of God. So there has to be a manifestation of holiness in your life. Now, this isn't something that we concoct on our own. We don't create this holiness. We don't try to work harder at at, at doing... No, God does it in us. It's his work. And that's why it's so neat to sit back when someone professes Christ, to sit back, and if it's genuine, you see God begin to do that work of holiness in their life. To allow them to become more like Christ. To give them new desires. Pretty soon, they're, they're showing up for things they'd never think they'd show up for. At a church. Because God is giving them a desire. God is, is, is working on them. 
And so he says there must be a manifestation in, in chapter 1 of 1 John. And then in chapter 2, he shows all these false things that are, that are uh, uh, added, back in Colossians, excuse me, added to your, your faith as extra things in Colossians chapter 2. And that's what I want us to look at right now. Colossians chapter 2. Look down at verse 10. We'll we'll start here. Colossians chapter 2. It tells us here that he, he begins to share with us That because Christ who he is and the work that he done, has done for us on our behalf, okay, he wants to make sure that we understand that the message of Colossians is that we are really complete in him. That we are complete in Christ. We don't need anything other than Christ. And this is what he says over and over and over again throughout the book of Colossians because he's dealing with people that thought they were incomplete in Christ. And a lot of times today in churches, people feel incomplete in Christ because maybe, maybe they're trying to live a life that the Spirit isn't in their life, so they're trying to do something they can't do in the first place because they're holding on to a, maybe a false profession of Christ. And we're not to go around and judge. We do, we're not to do that. But the Bible does say that you can tell by fruit. You can see what God is doing in someone's life. And so he wants them to understand clearly that in Christ, they are complete. And you wonder, why does Paul say this here to these these people in Colossae? And this goes back to the whole idea of our righteousness and our salvation that we're talking about in Romans. Because, I mean, really, the, the important question here that they were asking in Romans, and Paul was sharing with them, and here in Colossians, is how can someone be right with God? If we're such sinners, how can we ever be right with God? And in Colossae, certain teachers were telling them, oh, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to, you know, on and on and on. Do you know that Somewhere here in our city this morning, there's an individual lighting a candle in hopes that God would be gracious to them, maybe gracious to their departed spouse. That somewhere here in our city this morning, folks are maybe attending Mass, saying prayers with a string of beads, going through religious motions and practices and hope that somehow they can receive God's grace in their lives. That today in our city even, there's people who are serving in churches purely for the motive of putting on an outward appearance of righteousness to be seen by men. It 
Somewhere in the world, no doubt, there's probably a man offering his child upon an altar, hoping somehow to appease his angry God. Somewhere in the world today, a man will cut himself with a knife, hoping that somehow the pain that he goes through will win the approval of his deity. Somewhere in the world today, a man lies on a bed of nails, proving by his mastery of pain, his worthiness of eternal life. In the Middle East, we've seen millions of believers who bow and pray toward Mecca, following their dictates of their religion. Even here in America, you see that. In Haiti, there's voodoo doctors who are killing chickens and placing their carcasses on an altar, hoping to appease their God. In Iraq and Syria, radical Islamic terrorists are seeking to please their God by beheading infidels and inflicting terror on millions of innocent people. Why are they doing this? The answer is always the same. Men and women who do these things desperately want to be right with God. They just have a warped sense of what rightness is. They do this because they want to appease their God, or please their God, or pacify their God. And what Paul does in Colossians, he says, you know what, as far as salvation goes, you know, confession and repentance and and submitting to the Lordship of Christ, that's all intrinsic in, in salvation. That's part of the salvation process. But there are some things that people add to it. There are false elements that are added to salvation. And that's what he says here in Colossians chapter 2. He talks of one, the first one there, philosophy or humanism. That's what he says in in verse 8. He says, "See, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. What is philosophy? It's made up of two Greek words, basically, phileo and sophia. Phileo means to love. Sophia means wisdom. What's philosophy? It's the love of wisdom. There are people in our world today, beloved, that just love wisdom. And they think somehow, if they just get enough wisdom in their life, that that's going to help them as far as their righteousness goes. Now, wisdom is not a bad thing. We're, We're called to be wise. But we don't say that, well, you can only be saved if you have wisdom. Or that wisdom is a path to salvation. The love of wisdom is simply the love of philosophy. The second thing Paul points out here quickly in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, he talks about legalism. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or in regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. See, the, her- the heretics in Colossae not only said, you know, you're not going to cut it because you don't have any human philosophy. You can't just trust Jesus. You have to have some human philosophy on top of that. Um, but there are also some things that you have to achieve Religiously, 
It's Christ plus works righteousness. And beginning in verse 16, he begins to share with them what this is about. What's legalism? Legalism is simply this. It's subscribing your spirituality by your ability to keep man-made rules. It's judging someone's spirituality by their ability to keep man-made rules. And you say, well, how is that different from doing what God tells us to do by obeying God? See, obeying God's rules is obedience. It's not legalism. Because they're God's rules. They're not ours. But when you define your spirituality by your submission to man-made rules, what are man-made rules? Well, anything that, I mean, Paul lists them there, festivals and different things. I remember going to college I went to, you had to have your, your hair off your collar and over your ears. That was a man-made rule. Couldn't listen to any music with a beat. But that was kind of stupid. Every music, all music has a beat. I thought that was kind of weird. They were all man-made rules. And I remember struggling with it, thinking, where's the verse to support this stuff? That's legalism. And we have to be careful about that. And Paul warned them about that. And down in verses 18 and 19, he talks about mysticism. He says, let no one disqualify you in insisting on aestheticism and worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. He goes on and he goes on and he shares that. What is mysticism? Mysticism is a a higher religious experience based on some personal kind of subjective experience. I mean, you hear this even in our Christian circles sometimes. When we say things like, well, you know, I was the other day and God just spoke to me. And and, wait, he spoke to you? What do you mean he spoke to you? Like you heard his voice? Really? Really? We have to be careful because there's a whole other (laughs) part of this that that people really, really hold on to this. And and they're led by mystic things and worship of angels and all sorts of weird things. Whenever someone says, well, the reason I know is because I had this experience. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. God speaks very clearly through his word. Can he use our experiences? Definitely. Definitely. But you better be very, very careful when you attribute the voice of God to one of your experiences. Because it might just be the bad pizza you had the night before or something. Who knows? And see, they were claiming back in Paul's day, oh, we have this higher, we have this broader, deeper, kind of mystical union with God that you folks don't have. And we've obtained this piety in our lives as a result. And you have to experience certain things to do this. And and to do that, you kind of climb up the ladder of of spirituality. You see that in our modern-day charismatic movement, that whole thinking. That somehow, you know, a man on a stage, if you get up here closer to me, that you're, you're closer to holiness than anywhere else in the room. I mean, it's ridiculous. 
You know, it's a lie. That man is just like you or I. Sometimes, frankly, they're worse. <laughs> so we have to be careful. And then the last thing here, aestheticism, the, the whole idea here in verse 20 to 23, he says, if, Christ, if with Christ you died to the uh, elemental spirits of the world, why, as if still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? So what is aestheticism? The dictionary defines it as somebody who lives a a life of total self-denial. Someone who sells everything and goes and lives in a monastery somewhere. Now, if you want to do that, that's fine. Go do it. But don't do it as a means of gaining grace from God. Don't do it as a means of thinking somehow God is going to look on you more highly than someone who doesn't do that? In our Christian lives today, you know, a lot of times it's, it's, it's funny because you see all these things kind of almost combined. You know, there are some, some Christians, and for good reason, maybe they don't have a television in their home or whatever. That's fine. Okay, but to think that somehow that that makes you more spiritual than anybody else. See, that, that's where we, we fall into that trap. Now, granted, there's a lot of garbage on TV that we don't need to be watching. But frankly, I like to watch sports or certain shows now and then to relax. You know, everything done in, in, in a, a reasonableness, you know, we just have to, to, to watch it. We have to guard it. There's a lot of garbage on there, too. And you're probably better off not having it in your home, to be honest. But don't make that a mandate for everybody, because when you do that, you fall into this this trap. And see, over the years, so many times in Christianity, we've been fed this lie that the spiritual people are the people who become monks or priests or nuns, and they go live, you know, outside of society in in a way, and that's all they do. Uh, Or the only truly spiritual people are the people who have nothing. They give everything to, to... help the poor or whatever. Uh, and, and that's what I'm saying. That, that kind of thinking, all those things are false elements that people add to their salvation, thinking that if we just have one of these, that maybe that's going to help us out a little bit more. Now, we all want to stand before God one day. We all will stand before God one day. But we all want him to declare us righteous in his sight, don't we? I mean, that's the goal here. And really, the, the answer to this great question, how can a man be made right with God? That's what we find in Romans chapter 3. That's the whole point of his message here. This is what he wants us to understand. And so I think the first thing we need to do is look at the uniqueness of God's righteousness. What What makes God's righteousness special? Well, first of all, is the source of it. It comes from God. And that's what he says here back in Romans chapter 3. He says, but now the righteousness of who? Of God. All right? His righteousness has been shown to us, has been manifested to us. And I think that we need to be reminded in our own, in our own lives that, you know what, after all this bad news, there is a righteousness to be had. It's just not our own. 
Because the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. And so if that's true, then if we have any righteousness at all, it truly has to be a miracle of God. I mean, when you stop and you think of our dilemma, totally depraved, we're lost in sin. We serve a God who is just. He wants to love us. He wants to forgive us, but he's also a God of holiness. He can't just blink and overlook it. How could God love sinners and yet not overlook their sins? How could God be true to himself by forgiving sinners but not overlooking the sins that they've committed. And we've all committed sins. See, divine justice demands the condemnation of sinful mankind. Yet divine love wants to reach out to the guilty human race and to have fellowship with them. So you have this quandary. How can corrupt human beings ever be made righteous in the sight of a holy God? And that's Basically, where we're going with this, the miracle of righteousness. It's only through our Savior and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, only God could come up with a creative plan this way that that allowed His own Son to be born in likeness of man, and yet without sin, so He could receive the full just punishment for our sin, and it was fully met on the cross. That the death of Christ fully satisfied God. And when we put our faith, our trust in that work that was accomplished on the cross through Christ, that we would be freely forgiven. I mean, only God could come up with something like that. I mean, if I was God, I would have made it, I would have come up with a different route, frankly. But God came up with this wonderful plan. And so God is both in salvation. He's the punisher. He's punishing sin. And yet he's justifying those who believe in Christ. He has both roles going on. Garrison Keillor once said this, humorist. He wrote this. He said, sometimes you just have to Look reality square in the face and deny it. (laughs) And that's what people do today. You know, maybe you look at yourself in the mirror and go, oh, I look pretty good when you've gained a few pounds. Maybe you get your report card, ah, not bad when you could have done a lot better. Um, You know, whatever the thing is, we have to look reality in square in the face and say, yeah, this is right. This is what God says. Because all truth is God's truth. And this is what this first point is. God's righteousness is different because it comes from Him. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 8, it says, Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit and righteousness spring up with it. And then he says this, I, the Lord, have created it. Righteousness can only come from God Himself. We can't create it. We can't conjure it up. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's 
no righteousness outside of Jesus Christ. Second point here is not only because it's God's, God is the source that makes his righteousness different, but it's also the quality of his righteousness. Look at, you know, the thing that we need to understand is that if it comes from God, then it's got to be the best righteousness there is. There's the only righteousness. It's a comprehensive righteousness. And by that I mean it fulfills both the, the precept and the penalty of God's law. And under God's law, all men stand judged. The precept of God's law is the perfect fulfillment of it. In other words, sinless perfection. We don't have that ability. The only person that had that ability fulfilled it, and that was who? Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. That's what uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48 tells us. If you want to have righteousness from God, you have to be perfect. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And see, Jesus Christ was perfect. He kept every requirement of God's law without even the most minute deviation. He endured every temptation. Same temptations that we're subject to, and yet he was completely without sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, what? Yet without sin. He fulfilled it perfectly. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin... He was sinless to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a glorious truth. That Jesus Christ, who was sinless in every way, he actually just just take on our sin. He became sin, it says. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The only righteousness, beloved, we're ever going to have is through the power of the death of Jesus Christ. His death, his resurrection proved he had power over sin and death. I mean, and you stop and you think about it, even the sins of those who are redeemed and live before Christ are forgiven by his death. Even those who are not yet redeemed, but will be redeemed because one day they will come to, to the truth, will bear upon their heart the truth of the gospel, and they'll repent of their sin, they'll confess Jesus as Lord, and they'll be gloriously saved. Maybe they, they're not even born yet. You know what? Their sins are forgiven. That's how powerful the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ were. When he forgave, he forgave it all. When Jesus died, he reached all the way back to Adam, and he took care of all those who have been saved by his marvelous grace. And he also took care of the redeemed who would live long after him. In the death of this one man, all the sins of the redeemed are fully paid for, past, present, and future. I don't know about you, but that that makes me happy. (laughs) That's a good thing. It's wonderful to know that you can come to Christ, you can confess your sins, and they're forgiven. But you know what? It's another thing to know that, you know what? When you sin tomorrow, that's forgiven too. Or the day after that, that's forgiven too. 
As a result, those who believe in Jesus find their sins are gone forever and ever. What do we call this? We call this salvation. (laughs) We call this being saved. We call this redemption. We call this being born again. He who has no sin bore the sin. He paid the penalty in its entirety for all those who would be called to him by salvation, by his grace. Well, God's righteousness is also different here because of its endurance. And we'll close with this. It's endurance. It has an incredible way of enduring. His righteousness is everlasting righteousness. I don't know if you remember the, the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Remember the thing he invented, the everlasting God stuff? I thought, man, i got to get a hold of these when I was younger. I remember getting one. I thought, wow, this is cool. This is going to last forever. Well, it didn't last forever, right? It wasn't everlasting. Eventually, he kind of, you know, sucked that thing down and and chewing it up or swallowing it. God's righteousness is everlasting righteousness. It exists from eternity to eternity. Psalm 119, verse 142, your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. Isaiah 51.8, for the moth will eat them up like a garment and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. Or Daniel 9.27, he speaks of the 70 weeks here. He says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression and to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. So the person who receives God's righteousness receives it In an everlasting form. It never goes away. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we're reminded, verse 13, he writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by your forefathers, Listen, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. For he he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Through him are believers in God who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The, glass, the, gla- the grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. 
And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to rely on uh, our own ability to save us. We don't have to add philosophy or humanism or legalism or mysticism or anything else in order to be righteous in your sight. Father, we thank you that your righteousness is different because it comes from you. It's different because it, it, it's, a, it's a quality of righteousness that the world has never seen before. It pays for all of our sins. It takes care of all of our sins. And it lasts forever. It's eternal. Father, if we can't, as believers, get excited about that, I don't, I, we must be dead. The fact that when you saved us, you saved us for all eternity. And the blessed truth that it wasn't because of us, or some goodness in us, but it was your divine choice. You set your love upon us and caused us to turn from our sin and turn to you as our Lord and Savior. Father, I pray for each person in this room. I pray for those who may not have committed their lives to Christ yet. Lord, I pray that you would allow this truth to resonate in their hearts that through the power of your word and the power of your spirit that you would move and work and draw them to a place where they're willing to bend their knee to Christ, to submit fully to Christ as their Savior and Lord, acknowledging that he and only he can forgive their sin and make them right with God. And pray as believers we would take this message to a lost and dying world that's outside these four walls that we would not hesitate to share with them their need to look beyond themselves and to realize that there is an eternity waiting. And death is 100% for all of us. One day we'll all die. And Lord, we just pray that you would be gracious and draw them to yourself as they hear the gospel and see the gospel in our own lives. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.